Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. We've been talking uh, this Advent season, uh, this month, about uh, the child who was born unto us. Isaiah chapter 9 is a prophecy there that we've been looking at or been thinking about dwelling on. For unto us a child is born. Lots of prophecies about that birth, one. And so we we looked at uh, that first Sunday, the born prophecy. We didn't cover all of the prophecies. That would take forever. Um, But we looked at some of them regarding the Messiah, Uh, And ultimately what we have in the prophets there is hope promised, uh, salvation promised. The second Sunday we looked at the identity of this Messiah, who he would be. So we called that the born identity. We walked through Romans chapter 1 where Paul identified Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus the God-man, word made flesh. Through identifying there with Jesus, we receive grace a calling and a purpose in that grace, in that new life we receive from Christ. This is where we discovered that in Christ, hope is identified. Salvation is identified. Last week, we looked at the born supremacy. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and following, there Paul teaches that the church, uh, that, uh, teaches the church that Jesus Christ is supreme over all. Um, and he gave us several truths to support that claim of the supremacy of Christ. That Jesus is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. And it is there in the born supremacy where we find hope empowered, salvation empowered in and through Christ. Today we look at the born ultimatum. An ultimatum is a demand which, if not met, will end a relationship or otherwise result in a serious consequence. In John chapter 3, take your Bible and open to the gospel of John chapter 3. There is a very familiar question and answer session, conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. I'd encourage you to turn there with me as I read the first eight verses of John chapter 3. And as I do, if you would stand with me uh, for the reading of the word of God. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we've opened your word this morning and read just a portion of 
the massive amount of truth that it contains, and yet it is one of the most important parts where Jesus reveals to us that we must be born again. Father, I pray that you would teach us what we do not know of your word. And Lord, if there be anyone in this room this morning or watching online that is not born again, has not trusted Christ as Savior and Lord, Father, that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be their birthday. What we do not know, teach us. What we are not yet, make us, Lord, for your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, church. You may be seated. Let's take a few steps backwards this morning and just say, Eden, we have a problem. It's the worst news ever. Oh, great. We're getting close to Christmas and it's going to be one of those sermons. Yeah, there's nothing better. Nothing better. The worst news ever. From the time of the very beginning when Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, man was created to have a relationship with God. And they lived in that state for some amount of time. The scriptures don't tell us how long they were in the garden with God, only that they were in the garden with God and they could hear him and they were in his presence. He was in their presence. Before there was a time or before there was time at all, before there was anything, right, there was God. John chapter 1 makes it clear to us. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. God was there. Genesis chapter 1, 1, in the beginning, God created. Nothing created God. He's always been, has been, will be forever and ever. And so God made the world, and he made it for his glory. He made it to help us know him. And he made it for us to love him and to trust him. And God gave Adam and Eve everything they needed to sustain life and to be fruitful and multiply in that garden. Everything there to fully enjoy it. But there was one command. You know it if you know the story at all. That one command would examine Adam and Eve's level of trust and obedience in God's provision. The only question on the test was this. Would they take God at his word and believe him? Would they trust him? Adam and Eve sinned in that garden for the very first time. God's will and direction was that They could eat from all of his provision in the garden, lacking nothing. But there was one tree from which they could not eat, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We know that tree. You and I know that tree. No, we haven't physically eaten of its fruit, but we know that tree. Eve was tempted by the crafty Satan, Adam as well, and Adam follows along and not leading well in that moment, and he takes the, the fruit and, and of the tree, and he eats it, and the sin is done, and Satan had convinced them. Satan had convinced them to question God's design, question the garden, question his authority, doubt what he spoke, question God's goodness to them in the garden. And all along, Satan is telling them, God is holding something back from you. You deserve it. It would make your life so full of happiness to know what God knows. Those things aren't going to be found within his parameters, within within what he said. Did he really say that? Is that really what he meant? We eat from that tree daily. 
convinced that God is holding something back from us that would make us totally happy and totally fulfilled. And so we go off on our own, though it not it be not in God's will, we take that tree all the time. The sin could not go unpunished in that moment, and so God removed them from the garden, removed them from all of his provision. Eden, we have a problem, and that problem is sin. That sin problem comes with wages, consequences, and it's where the curse is introduced in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, for you are dust and you will return to dust. Death is coming as a consequence, as a wage for sin. You'll remember from the time we spoke of the prophecy, the born prophecy, way back at the beginning, that God did not leave his creation hanging out to dry. Though he put the consequence in for sin, which is death, the wage of sin is death, is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3. The very first hope-filled, glory-giving, mercy-ringing promise of the Redeemer is announced in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where he speaks about one who will come and strike your head, and you will strike his heel. There he's talking to his adversary, Satan, and it's pointing us to a Redeemer that will come. Eden, we have a problem, but do we have a solution? So we flash forward to centuries and generations beyond that time in the garden to a time when Jesus had arrived. In John chapter 3, he's well into his time of ministry. He's identified by John as well as Matthew, Luke, and Mark as the Messiah. John identified Jesus as the Word made flesh. Matthew, Mark, and Luke give their own kind of perspectives on, uh, on who Jesus would be. For John, it seems to be just a tad bit more personal. God had a, a purpose in each one of them writing from a, a slightly different perspective. But for John, we get to see a personal side of Jesus, a side where Jesus is very concerned about the heart of man. Enter the scene, this guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus thought he was following the right way. Nicodemus thought he was following the way that offered the real solution to the problem of sin from centuries before. And that was to be a Pharisee. You'll find people like Nicodemus today in the church and even outside of the church. A Pharisee was a man who trusted in his ability to follow the rules, toe the line. He carried out the rules to an extent that the Pharisees actually created laws on top of God's law to help them keep from breaking God's law. So they had the Mosaic law, God's law that he gave, we have in the Old Testament. Then we have the Pharisaic law on top of God's law, just so they didn't even get close to breaking God's law. They just added to it, and it made it impossible. It was already impossible, but it made it even more impossible for people to draw close to the Lord. Their trust, his trust particularly, was in the wrong place. We don't call these folks Pharisees today. We might call them legalists. We may call them something else. But this is the kind of person who believes that there would be some kind of higher being. Now, legalist in the terms of following their own way, creating their own system. They're legalists to their own system. Their hope is in a belief of some kind, maybe some kind of mix-match concoction of personal goodness, based upon 
whatever their convictions are, political, social, otherwise, some kind of law, maybe it's the laws of the land, maybe a little bit of God's laws mixed in, and they hope by some chance their good will outweigh their bad. Thus, they're going to get into heaven. Hope they've been good enough, but that's not where hope is found. Some people would call that karma. That's a familiar term. The Bible doesn't teach karma. It teaches sin. Let's hope my good outweighs my bad. Man, that's a sad way to live, people. I'm just going to tell it like it is. That's a sad way to live. Don't get to your deathbed and wish and hope that you are good enough because your hope will fail. Just telling you like it is. Hope is found in Christ. And that is the root of what Nicodemus believed in that system of the law. That if they followed the law, one, two, three, all the way down the line, 600 plus laws to follow in addition to what they were putting on top of the law that was already in place. He was hoping that a life full of good works, man, they did. The Pharisees were not just awful, evil people. You go and look at what Jesus tells them in Matthew 23. He compliments them at one point for their tithing, but they're missing out on the heart of it. They're following the law. They're doing what we would call some good things, but man, they're missing the heart of it, and that's where Nicodemus is, hoping that they could earn a place in eternity. It's kind of like buying a ticket to a sporting event. The more money you pay, the better the seat and closer to the action you are. I hope I can do enough to buy me a good seat in, in eternity. The more good they do, the more they follow the law, the more personal price there is to pay, the closer they appear to be to God. And so what Jesus offers Nicodemus in this moment is quite telling of where Nicodemus is on the spiritual spectrum. It has much to say to us today. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. That's not just the time of day reference for John. He often in his writing gives us a phrase like that with a symbolic meaning as well. Coming at night is very symbolic of where Israel is in their spiritual status in that time. You remember what the scriptures tell us, that he is, Jesus has saved us and brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. For outside of Christ, you're in darkness. Right now, Nicodemus is outside of Christ, and so we see him coming at night, literally and symbolically. And as a Pharisee, zealous for the law of God, zealous for the Mosaic law. Living in that ritual. They've become stuffed mummies. There's no life. And the key problem with these Pharisees, it still is a problem for so many today, is the problem of the heart. It's a problem for all of us. Their hearts were never changed by the externals. They, tr they exchanged trusting God and trusting his word with a set of rules that would hopefully modify behavior. We got a puppy recently. For your sake, if you come to our house this afternoon, she will be set to the side and put back in the back room so she doesn't eat you alive because she loves to eat humans. Oh, the power of the doggy treat. 
She will do what I ask her to do if there's a treat hanging over her head. Behavior modification. That's not what God's after. Jesus here in this moment, he's talking to Nicodemus and he's not dangling a treat over him. He's offering him life change. Nicodemus, I've come to change your heart. See, in Matthew 23, Jesus gives several, they call them the woes. Woe to you Pharisees, you scribes, you Pharisees, you, you, you keepers of law, like teachers of the law, excuse me. He describes them as one in one situation as a, a whitewashed tomb, which back in that day they cleaned up the outside, whitewashed it, painted it white, made it look nice. Right? It looks clean and orderly on the outside, but then Jesus says, pow, and on the inside it's full of dead men's bones. And another time he talks about how they're like a cup. On the outside, it's clean. It looks fresh, ready to be used, but on the inside, it's full of gunk and mold and disgusting, vile things. Doesn't that describe all of us? We don't need to make the same mistake that Nicodemus was making, that good behavior merits God's grace. It's actually the exact opposite. God's grace is offered unmerited favor, and that changes your heart regardless of your merit. And Nicodemus approaches Jesus at night, trying to figure out who this guy is. Okay, great, Nicodemus, you must be from God, he tells Jesus, because of the signs you're doing, because of the things you're performing. We got people chasing after signs and miracles today, believing that God ain't real unless they see it. But here it is. Nicodemus says, I've seen what you've done thus far. I believe you are from God, but Jesus Lowers the boom. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, he knew exactly where Nicodemus was trusting. He knew exactly what Nicodemus was trusting in. See, Paul writes it. Paul was also a Pharisee before he followed Jesus. Paul wrote, no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law. Paul learned that lesson. Nicodemus, I believe, will learn that lesson by the end. But we see him at the end with Joseph Arimathea taking care of the body of Christ. Nicodemus, though he thought he had figured this out, he has not. For unto us a child is born, and this child is now speaking to Nicodemus. And we remember the reason why Christ came this season is because he came to save people from their sins. And he's offering this now to Nicodemus. Jesus offered him the born again ultimatum. This is the best news ever. The bad news of sin, the good news, the best news ever is that Jesus has come to conquer that sin and pay for that sin and to give you a new heart. Nicodemus, being who he was in darkness, highly religious, for sure pointed out the divine nature of who Jesus was as he worked those signs and miracles. Jesus wasn't interested in that. Again, Jesus points him to the heart. Nicodemus, it's about your heart. Jesus knew the writings of, G of Jeremiah. He knew the writings of the weeping prophet where Jeremiah wrote, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? The one who created it. The one who gave us life and now gives us life again. Jesus is offering Nicodemus the transformation of his heart through that born again ultimatum. Jesus says in verse three, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That is a vital truth. The gospel hangs 
on that truth. Life change hangs on that truth. Friends, that is the point of Christmas. The cradle happened, and we dare not look past it, but we see through the cradle to the cross of Christ, which was a necessity. Jesus issued that born-again ultimatum with a truly I tell you. Anytime you read that, most of the time you're going to read it in John's gospel. That's an introduction by John as he gives that, and Jesus himself, it affirms the devotion to truth. Truly, truly. More than one truly, there's, there's weight behind it. This is the word of God. This is his truth. And it is absolutely significant. And here Jesus uses that to point to that simple truth. There is no entry into the kingdom of God or eternal life unless you are born again. Nicodemus, there's no back way in. There's no earning your way in. There's no diploma handed out when you cross over from death to, into eternity. There's no graduation ceremony, nothing like that. You see, Jesus, in this moment, Jesus is guiding his heart away from what, whatever source he put his confidence in. For Nicodemus, it was his effort of following the law. That's where his trust was. Self-effort through law-keeping. The Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, there she comes to get water, and Jesus asked her for a drink of water. They had a, a little conversation, and he, he breaks this out on her, and he says, Listen, whoever drinks this water is going to thirst again. Whoever drinks the water I offer, living water, he changes the narrative for her and changed her life forever. And she goes back after another conversation about worship. You see, where she was, she was, she was hanging on that water because she was thirsty. But even more than that, what really comes out in that conversation is she was hanging on the, thought, on the, on the fact that she thought we worship God in Samaria. We are right. The Jews are wrong. And they had a conversation about it. And Jesus says, you know what? A time is coming and is now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And it's not about location. It's not about the temple. It's about your heart. And I'm offering you living water. There's another man, a rich young ruler. He comes and has a conversation with Jesus, much like Nicodemus. And he says, hey, man, what do I need to do to have eternal life? He says, you know what? Jesus says, go sell everything you got. And give to the poor and follow me. Well, he had already given up that he had followed the rules. He would kept the Ten Commandments. He was doing fine on all those. But that's not what he was trusting in. He was trusting in his money. Jesus knew that. He called him to it. And he said, go sell everything you got. Follow me. He was not willing. You see, what happens here is Leon Morris describes it. He says, in one sentence, he's... Jesus swept away all that Nicodemus stood for, and he demands that he be remade by the power of God. What is it that you're trusting in? Could be money. If it is, you're probably hurting right now because of the economy tanking. Is it your family, your children? You're trusting in how they turn out? Your marriage? Your job? There's one a lot of us give ourselves to, especially as Americans. We're some of the hardest working people in the world. What does it get us? The man who dies with the most toys still dies. The preacher, Solomon, in Ecclesiastes says, it's all a chasing after the wind. Where's your trust? What would Jesus call you out on? You see, we need a new heart. 
Nicodemus was puzzled by Jesus' offer of being born again. He's thinking a physical restart. Jesus, how is it possible for an old man like me to get back into my mother's womb and be born again? And that's not at all what he was talking about. You ever wish you had a do-over? So you ever play golf with me, you get lots of do-overs because I play golf by grace. It's called mulligans. <laughs> I've played with guys who say, oh, no, preacher, you only get one mulligan. You know, but when I'm in charge, you take a mulligan. A little foot wedge here, a little foot wedge there. No, no. No physical restarts, friends. Do-overs, you can't go back and change what's in the past. But in Christ, that is forgiven. It's paid for. We need a new heart. God planned for and promised that new heart and new birth in Ezekiel, through his prophet Ezekiel. When he said, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your old heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. But the following doesn't happen until the heart is changed. Nicodemus got it backwards. He was trying to follow in order to change his heart, but you can't do that. And you note that it's God's work, Ezekiel said. He said, I will give you a new heart. That's not Ezekiel promising his followers to do that. That'd be like me saying, I'll give you a new heart. I, I don't have the power to do that. I need a new heart. It's God's work. And this new birth is not dependent upon uh, our religious activity. It's not dependent on Nicodemus and how religious he had been, which was pretty active. He had better attendance than your preacher did. I mean, he was on it. Twice as active, perhaps, as a normal Jew. But Jesus said, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of salvation without experiencing this new birth. You see, it wasn't a matter of how many times he attended services in the temple. And in the same way, salvation doesn't depend on how much you attend church. After salvation, after your new heart, you certainly want to be gathered with saints and believers and brothers and sisters in Christ. But for Nicodemus, it didn't matter how much he put in the plate. It didn't matter. His heart was not in the right place. What matters first and foremost is this. Are you born again? Everything else flows from the heart when the heart is born again. It's Christ in your life, born from above, born by God's grace. Well, the, Nic the, the, the implications for Nicodemus here are absolutely staggering, and they're the same for us too. All of his life, he had observed the law, diligently following the rules, following the rituals, the rites of Judaism, never missed a feast, never missed an offering, never missed a sacrifice, never missed a Passover or any of the other traditions they had established by then. Yet you hear what Jesus is saying. Nicodemus, you're going to have to give all of that up and follow me. You're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to be born again. It is a work of my Father. Everything you've placed your hope in, Nicodemus, you're going to have to give it up and realize that your effort to save yourself or recreate yourself is absolutely flawed, and you're not going to achieve what you've set out to achieve by following the set of rules. Linsky is helpful here as well. He says, Jesus' words regarding this new birth shatters once and for all every supposed excellence of man's attainment, all merit of human deeds, all the prerogatives of natural birth or station. Spiritual birth is something that we undergo, not something that we produce. 
We can't manifest it. We can't make it happen. It is the work of God. And Jesus has shattered Nicodemus' world in this one moment and yet picked up the pieces by saying, you must be born again. Nicodemus, here is the solution. We love Christmas at our house. We have our traditions. I'm sure you have them as well. One that I'm looking forward to is Amber's homemade cinnamon rolls on Christmas morning. So if my children are hyper, as they, I mean, more hyper than normal next Sunday, and your preacher is a little more active next Sunday, it's because I had a really good cinnamon roll from the middle of the pan. Now, all of that to say, there is a place of Christmas of its familiarity, its traditions. It's rituals. But there's this other side of Christmas that might be a bit more uncomfortable for us. It's great, and I've said this before, and lovely to see a nativity that reminds us of how fragile this moment was when he came, and yet we forget the cross. Or we might just remove the cross altogether and say, no, that's Easter, that's another time of the year. But you can't do that. The ultimatum from Jesus to Nicodemus is what makes us a little bit more uncomfortable. You must be born again. You see, ultimatums, at least in the movies, typically come from bad guys. They come from the terrorists, some kind of threatening entity. Do this or else, you know. But that's not what Jesus did. His ultimatum is totally different. Jesus offered Nicodemus new birth. You must be born again in order to receive eternal life. What makes Jesus different is that he is going to pay that ultimatum at the cross. That he came down and took on flesh, subjected himself to all the weaknesses of humanity, being a man in the flesh, yet absolutely perfect in every single way, flawless, sinless, And what he's telling Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, you can't pay the price yourself. I'm going to pay it for you. You must be born again. That's the ultimatum. But I will pay for the ultimatum so that you can have and receive new life by grace. That's the biggest difference is that God came down to pay that price. He came down to pay the penalty. The demand was met by Jesus at the cross. And through being born again, leading to saving faith in Christ Jesus, that brings about the new life, the new heart. Friends, the gospel is the change that changes everything. When we are born again, we leave behind a life of sin and corruption. We turn away. That's called repentance that brought nothing but devastation into our hearts. Even if we're trying to live our best life and and live and make it in our own goodness, even in our own goodness, the Bible says, is as filthy rags before God. And what we have to remember is that that devastation and decay, it's not just for people out there in the world who are strung out on drugs or living in the streets or drunk or living a life with prostitutes or the prostitute herself. It's, it's not the one strung out and addicted to porn or facilitating human trafficking and all the sins of the world. It's for the people who who are trying to genuinely live a good moral life and that's not going to get it. It's not going to cut it. It's for every single one of us. We must be born again. No matter how good you are or where you're from, if you trust in Christ, you receive this new life from God, 
Thus we are born again. We are born from above. In John chapter 1, John writes, To all who did receive him, he gave the right to be the children of God, to those who believe in his name. Not because of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. We don't earn the right to become children of God. Rather, he gives us that grace to be a child of God who believe in his name. That's where Nicodemus was in this moment. The born again ultimatum offers you a living hope. The born-again ultimatum offers you a living hope that if you will trust in Christ, here's what Peter wrote. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's all done by God. That's why we praise him. That's why we glorify him. He has given us this living hope We need to remember. We need to apply this to our lives. Through the born-again ultimatum that Jesus offers us a living hope, a living salvation. And our king is living. He offers us, Peter does, those words of encouragement reminding us that salvation brought on by the new birth in Christ doesn't come because of who we are or because of what we've accomplished. It's just like Nicodemus Heard from Jesus himself, salvation and new life comes as a gift of grace from God. Or else we're dead in our sin and in our trespasses. And yet in the grace of God, we are made alive with Christ and his righteousness. You see the great dynamic, the one thing that'll change you, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In all of the difficulty that we face in our day and time, an economic downturn, hardship, our Congress uh, passing all kinds of crazy laws right now, trying to get them in before everything changes over. That's not where we're going, but listen. People always say, we're going to hell in a handbag. Friend, we're already there because we're not in heaven. We're, We're living in a sinful world. The line's drawn in the sand. You must be born again. We've got to remember and hold on to this living hope. This is what the born ultimatum gives us. We are born again into a living hope, into his marvelous light. And we can join with Peter and countless others offering this this kind of rejoicing and praise to our God through Jesus Christ. Listen to what Peter wrote. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Why? Because we've been born again. Have you been born again? Because in Christ there is hope that is promised. We identify Christ as our Messiah. We have identified hope. When we think of Christ, we understand that he is supreme above all else. That is where we find hope that is empowered. And in the born again ultimatum, we see that hope comes alive as he takes our old heart of sin and gives us a new heart by the power of God. If you sense Jesus calling you this morning unto salvation, your one response is to believe. Repent of your sin, which means to turn away, believe and repent, believe and repent, and trust him as Lord of your life.
Not just Savior. That's a get-out-of-jail-free card. Lord, that means he's your boss. You follow him now. You let him work in that heart to exchange the sin with grace and mercy, and we become more like him in the days that we have before us. If that is where you are this morning, every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to offer a time for you to respond. If you're in that place of Nicodemus and you hear the word of God and you must be born again and you've not made that commitment in your life, then as we sing here in just a moment, in this time of response, I want to offer you a time to respond. I'll be here. I'll be happy to pray with you lead you in that way. If you want to just pray right where you are, you can certainly do that. Your prayer would sound something like this. Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner and I need you to forgive me. I believe you died on the cross to pay for my sins and that God raised you from the dead. I turn away from that sin and I confess my trust in you as Lord and Savior of my life. Please guide me and help me to do your will. Friend, if you have prayed, you can pray something like that. Don't let the song distract you from dealing with this moment. You can come be born again today by the grace of God. If you've already done that, you say, Pastor, I've been born again, but I'm struggling. You see the pool, the temptation is always there to put our trust in what we used to trust in rather than continuing to trust in God. Would you just confess that to the Lord? Allow the grace of God to draw you back. Pull that trust back. Focus on him. You can use this time now to praise God that he has intervened in your life and that you are born again. You can use this time to glorify him in that and pray for your neighbor, pray for your family, pray for your loved one, your friend that doesn't know Jesus and has not been, but lift their name up to the Father. 